Well, we're moving right along in our sermon series uh, titled Ephesians, Identity in Christ. And this morning, we, uh, our sermon title is Imitators of Moms. No, it's not. Imitators of God. All right. Uh, but we can learn a lot um, from, about God from our godly mothers and certainly fathers. Today, we're, we're going to approach kind of an awkward text for Mother's Day. I, I didn't quite plan it this way. It's just kind of how the cards landed on the table. So uh, but anyway, it is what it is. Um, so if you would turn in your Bibles or look in your bulletin at we're going to look at Ephesians chapter five, verses one through seven. We were called to be imitators of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore... Do not become partners with them. This is the word of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. If you want to know God, if you want to know his will, if you want to know his way, we must know his word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word before us. We thank you that we can know you, uh, and therefore we can uh, imitate you as uh, our beloved Father. May this word come alive to us this morning. May your Holy Spirit press upon us what you would have us learn. We pray um, for spiritual fruit in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you hear the word imitation, what comes to mind? Usually it has kind of a negative connotation, like something that is artificial or fake or, or manufactured, like, like uh, imitation sugar or imitation colorings, imitation flavorings, right? I learned very early on not to eat imitation crab meat. I had a friend of mine who worked on one of those fishing vessels up in Alaska, not the crab one, but the fishing vessels. They would, they would literally catch all this fish, and they would process it on the ship, and they would pack it and freeze it, and then ship it off to the stores. He said they would, you know, catch all these fish, and they would fillet the fish, but nothing went to waste, they would take the leftovers, uh, so to speak, and then they would give it some imitation coloring, a little imitation flavoring, and a little imitation shaping, and you would end up with imitation crab meat. Tastes just like the real thing, kind of, but it's not. This is um, the way the world we live in. There's often a negative sense with this word imitation, 
the positive sense just doesn't seem to appeal too much. But that's what we see going on in our text. There's a, a positive of appeal to, towards imitation. Imitation is and can be a very good thing if we imitate the good qualities of somebody that we admire and we try to press them into our own lives so that we can live that way ourselves. That's a good, positive way of imitation. That's what Paul is getting at when he says in this passage that we are to be imitators of God. Now, what does he mean by this? Well, he's certainly not calling for a, 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 a fake imitation, like what you'd see in the in the Pharisees. Just just uh, put on a sugar coat your life, you know. Just just uh, fake the holiness. No, rather he is saying that we are to become intimate in our relationship with our heavenly Father, so that we would know Him and therefore be able to walk like Him. You know. Human beings were made in God's image to reflect God's glory, <laughs> uh, imitation. All right, that's what we were made to do and called to do. Certainly not in all ways. There's certain things about God that we cannot really fully imitate, like his, like his infinite power, right? Or his infinite knowledge. But there are things that God communicates to his creatures, like wisdom and, and creativity, things like Goodness, which another word for is righteousness. And, and he calls us to walk in these ways. We're to walk with him for his glory. That, that's uh, another word for that would be holiness, set apart for God and for his purposes. Adam and Eve, our original parents, were, were called to um, image God, that they would walk with him, that they would live for him, that they would be like him as best the creature could be, like its creator. The problem is, though, this is not how we are today. There's been, Genesis 3 took place, there's a fall, there's a brokenness. And, and what we see now is that we're, we're, we're not able to reflect this image like we should. We're, we're like a mirror that's got shattered glass in it. You can still see some reflections, but, but um, it doesn't provide the full perfection. That's how it is for us. We've lost the ability to faithfully reflect God's image back into this world. That's where the gospel comes in, though. Thankfully, God in Christ uh, renews us. Uh, he takes, a, takes us upon him, as we've been studying in this letter, that the old person, the old you is now gone and you are now a new person, that we are to put off the old and we are to put on the new. We've been given a new capacity uh, to know God and to, to walk in his ways. And so what we see here is this, is that we are to be imitators of God. In our passage, there's four things Paul is going to call us to. As imitators of God, we are to remember, we are to reject, we are to rejoice, and we are to have resolve. All right, first, remember. Paul reminds the Christians here in Ephesus of their secure status as children of God. At the very beginning of his letter, back in chapter 1, Paul wrote that in love, God predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. So it makes perfect sense what we read here in our passage now in verse 1, where he says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Believers have been adopted into God's family. Therefore, believers should have a family resemblance of their heavenly father. It would be a great contradiction for you to 
be God's dearly loved child and yet have no desire to be like him. We know this being Mother's Day, that, that it isn't it true that every child who experiences the, the love of his or her mother um, desires to put on those qualities in, in, in their own lives? It's true. Consider the uh, young mom who's really frustrated. It's her first child. She's really frustrated with this fussy baby. It's no sleep at night and constantly wanting to be fed and not even eating properly, though. Uh, will she not look at her mother with a new fondness? as she considers how her mother must have put up with her for all of those infant toddler years that were so difficult. And just as her mother had endured with patience and love, so too now this new young mom can do the same. We, we do this in our lives. We imitate the good qualities of those we love. Paul's point is, though, is if, if we would imitate our earthly parents who certainly aren't perfect, how much more so should we imitate our Father in Heaven who is perfect? Paul tells us a foundational truth for Christian living. He says, we imitate God because we are beloved children. The the word beloved or beloved, it's, it's poetic language. It means to be greatly loved or to be dear to someone's heart. To be beloved is to have for your enjoyment the undivided affection of someone who deeply loves you. This is a good thing. It's something that our, that our hearts treasure. It's something that we long for here on earth, to be beloved. Paul says, imitate God as beloved children. Christian, this is to be your motivation in life. God's love for you is to well up in you. It's to captivate you. It's to to cause you to to love him and to honor him here on earth. We must have no other motivation in our lives other than this gospel message. One commentator writes, we are not loved because we obey. We obey because we're loved. Did you get that? That's the way the gospel, the way religion says, obey God and then he will love you. The gospel says that in Christ, um, you are loved. Therefore, obey. You know, often as Christians, we motivate others, our kids or people in our small groups or, or even pastors can do this. We, 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 we motivate with threats. Do what the scripture says. If you don't do it, well, then, you know, God's going to be angry with you. You better watch out. But we don't, must not prevent, present before, before our brothers and sisters that, that God's desire is to, is to jump on and, and bring vengeance upon his own child whom he dearly loves when we fail or fall short. This threatening approach never really works in the long run. It might work in the short run to get somebody to toe the line. But in the long run, it really leads to a sense of bitterness towards God. And it doesn't lead towards loving God more. I'm not saying that we shouldn't challenge people, that we shouldn't show people God's commands and, and, and rebuke them even when, when, they, when they are outside of God's will for their lives. But the first thing we must do is remind them that they are beloved children of God. And this is their motivation for wanting to live in holiness. So that's what Paul says in verse 1. He reminds the Ephesians that they're beloved children of God, so imitate him. And now in verse 2, he describes how we're to imitate our Heavenly Father. We do it by imitating His Son. Imitating God means we walk like the Son of God. Look at verse 2. 
and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Once again, Paul uses the word walk. Walk simply means how you live your life. And here he says we are to walk in love. You know, the Greek language, the ancient Greek language, has a number of words for love. The word here used for love is very rarely used in um, ancient Greek. It's, it's the word agape. It's the type of love that God has for his children. It's only found ten times in Homer's writings. In Euripides, it's found three times. But in the New Testament, it appears 320 times. Agape. This is the love of God. The unconditional love of God. Father John Bacchus writes this. He says, agape is sacrificial. It says, I love you when you're not very lovable. Agape is the cross, extending its arms to embrace all humanity. Agape loves when it's not always convenient and when it's not reciprocated. It extends to both the deserving and the undeserving. You could also say agape love is like the the love a mother has for her children, even when her children aren't living the life that they should be living. Unconditional love. And Paul says that this agape love is the love that we are to walk here on earth, because this is how Christ loves us. Paul says that Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. Obviously, he's referring to what? The cross. Jesus wasn't an unwilling victim. The text says he gave himself up for us. Jesus knew where his path was leading him. He knew that he was going to go to the cross. He knew he was going to hang there for the sins of the world. And he went there willingly. He offered up a sacrifice for your sins. Not because you deserved his love. Not because someday you would later repay him for this love. No, because this, his, his love is an agape love. It's a love for the undeserving. Paul described Jesus' love as him giving himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. This imagery is, of course, Old Testament imagery of, of temple sacrifices where, where the worshipers would come. With, we often think that they, were, they were, that they were upset and they were just you know, trudging in there unhappy. No, the worshipers would come with, with great songs and joyfulness. They would bring their offering into the temple and it would be laid there. They would, they would bring it with, with great humility and gratefulness to God. But the offering would be consumed and it would, it would create a pleasant odor to the Lord. But this imagery that Paul uses also, though, reminds us that this fragrant offering does not come without some sort of cost. There's, there's a self-giving. That's the offering he's talking about. And then there's some sense of dying to oneself. That's, that's the sacrifice. One commentator writes, There is no life of love without a degree of giving and dying. And therefore, to walk in the love of Christ means that we cannot avoid offering ourselves and sacrificing ourselves. Martin Luther once taught that that if we truly want to imitate Christ, then we must also, in some measure, suffer for the sins of others. I don't get him wrong. He's not saying that you or I could atone for somebody else's sins. But it's true, right? When we seek to live a life that honors God, when we seek to point people to Christ, there is within that this sense of having to 
die to self, to, to suffer as we, as we point people towards the love of Christ. In 90 seconds, we're going to turn our attention to Paul's admonition to flee from sexual immorality. But prior to that, he lays the foundation for that. Paul's point leading into this is that Jesus offered his his life as an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And so, too, then, when we um, offer our lives, it's going to be a sacrifice as well in order to be pleasing to God. This should challenge us and comfort us. It comforts us because it tells us that there's nothing odd about the fact that when you endeavor to live a holy life, it will hurt. The life of moral beauty is hard and painful. To succeed, we must give ourselves up. Brian Chapel writes this. It's a long quote, so bear with me. You're going to have to pay attention. Here's what he writes. It's really good. He says, Christian young men and women are too often ill-prepared for battle and weakened in spirit by the sense that they should not have to struggle much with the temptation of physical lust. Such persons are tempted to think that if they were really wholly mature and Christian, then it would not be difficult or painful to please God. But what is fragrant to God involves giving and dying of self. There is going to be some pain. If there were no pain involved, there would be no sacrifice. And the fact that your obedience involves pain and struggle does not necessarily mean that God is displeased with you or that you are less spiritual than others. In fact, without the pain of giving and sacrifice, There could be no fragrant offering to God. And then he reminds us of our motivation. What enables us to bear and offer this pain is savoring our identity as children of God and remembering that we were called to live as children of God. God who offered and sacrificed himself for us. So as God's children, we're, we're to long to imitate him. In this fallen and broken world where we ourselves are sinful, we come to the reality that, that to honor and to imitate him is going to involve pain in our own lives as we seek holiness, as we put off the old self, and as we put on the new. If you experience pain in your walk of holiness, that's a good thing. To not have any sort of pain or any remorse for how you're living your life is a sign that perhaps you don't even belong to the Lord. Or that you are perhaps walking away from him. So we're to remember our status as beloved children of God. Now, Paul says that there's something that we are to reject. Because we desire to imitate God's holiness, we are to reject sexual impurity. And And we cannot experience sexual purity without rejecting impurity. You know, I have some friends that are lactose intolerant. They have to reject every dairy product or suffer the consequences. Similarly here, Christians are to have no room in their lives for that which causes cramping and pain in our souls. That's Paul's point here. We must reject everything. Not have just a little bit in our lives and be comfortable with that. 
Paul writes in verse 3, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetedness must not even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which is out of place. These words, sexual immorality and, and all impurity and covetedness, they're, they're all related to one pervasive problem in our world and in Paul's world as well, which is self-indulgent sensuality. It's everywhere. And not just the acts too, but he's focusing on our speech. Our speech can be filthy and crude and full of coarse joking about sexual things. The world's lust for gratification outside, sexual gratification outside of marriage is, is rampant. N.T. Wright made this observation once when he's walking on a university campus and there's this giant poster over the, over the gateway into the university. In the middle of the sign was, a, was, a, was the word S-E-X in giant letters. As he got closer, he looked at the fine print. Here's what it said. It said, now you're interested. How about joining the college rowing club? Now, it wasn't that the writer, the, the, you know, the person who put together this sign, thought that there was any relationship between rowing and sex. But what did he know? Or she, I don't know. Could have been a she. What did he know? Well, he knew that this world is so sex-crazed. If you just put the word there, you're going to gather people's attention. That's why advertisers use the word sexy in all kinds of things, you know, from, 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 from cars to computers to coffee mugs. It's everywhere. The culture we live in is inundated with sex. Do you know that one in five mobile searches is sex-related? Sexual promiscuity is praised. Purity is mocked. Let's make a video. Let's make a movie about a 40-year-old virgin. Let's, 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 let's totally make him out to be a complete idiot, a goober, because he must be, right? Anybody who would be a virgin for that long would, must be just off their rocker or stupid, Right? That's how our culture presents it. But truth be told, it wasn't much different in Paul's day. In the cities where Paul traveled, as he planted these, these churches, casual sex and all kinds of other sexual activities uh, seemed to flourish. If you just look at the, at the artwork that was painted on the walls in those cities at those times, if you just look at the art that was painted on, on, their, on their vases and on their, on their pottery... People in that world and people in our world today are, saw little need for restraint. It's also interesting that, that the people who were most considered to be enlightened uh, were the ones who promoted promiscuity the, the, the most. It, it's similar then and it, and it is today. There was, there was religious cults in which after you were fully initiated, there would be sexual acts that take place. And, and, and the, the assumption was now you've finally been enlightened. It's the enlightened ones who do these things. All the rest of the people are in the dark. And that's how it is today. Many, many say that Christians are in the dark and, and with regards to their sexual beliefs and practices. And they will argue this. But I say they argue against a, a straw man. They, they create this image of what they think Christians believe about sex, and they argue against that. And, and their view is that, that Christians think that sex is evil and bad and dirty. It's like heroin. You must avoid it at all costs. But that's not the biblical understanding of sex. 
Here's a brief biblical understanding of sex. It's got to be our foundation for what we believe and, and how we live our lives and how we train our kids and teach our kids and how we interact as husbands and wives or as single people here on this planet. First off, sex is good. It's, it's a part of his good creation. It's God's design that human beings would, would have sex and enjoy it. It's not a, a bad or dirty thing. The problem with us human beings is all the good things that God gives us, some of the best things he gives us, we pervert and make it something that is unholy or unhealthy. Sex is a good thing. When a husband and wife come together, that's, that's God's given means for procreation so we can fill the earth and, and subdue it. It's a, it's a time in which a husband and wife can give of themselves to each other with great love and, and tenderness. It's, verses 1 and 2 can be in some ways lived out. Right? Where, where we see that we're to, to give of ourselves for somebody else, that we're to, to sacrifice. And, and, and as a husband embraces his wife, and as a wife embraces her husband, there's, there's a giving of yourself for the, for the betterment of the other person. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Don't let, if you're a young person here, don't let, don't let anyone tell you that the Christian understanding of sex is that it's a dirty thing and you've got to run and hide from. No, it's a beautiful thing. Paul is cautioning these Christians in, in, in Ephesus um, in, to, to have a biblical understanding of sex. He warns them. Why does he warn them? Why does he warn us? Because he's saying that sex is too good to cheapen it. That's why he's warning us. N.T. Wright makes this point. Casual sex is a parody of the real thing like drinking from a muddy stream instead of fresh, clear water, or like listening to a symphony on a damaged record or tape player when a world-class orchestra is playing in the theater around the corner. My friends, God's view and understanding and gift of sex is far greater than our culture's conception of it. But that's not what our culture tells us. Our culture bombards us with images and arguments and, and opportunities that, that can numb us to God's good design. And so Paul warns us that we, we must reject self-indulgent sensuality. What he's saying is, is regards to any type of sex outside of marriage, is, is he's saying, he says it right here in the text, it must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. In other words, he's saying, reject it. Cut it off like, like a cancerous growth. <laughs> you walk in the, in the light now. Don't, don't go towards the way of darkness. Paul's wording also has in it, in the original Greek, a sense of warning against the um, avoiding even small compromises. Because uh, what happens? Sexual sin builds and it, and it escalates. You know, I've counseled a number of men who've, who've been... Um, well entrenched in uh, pornography and other sexual sins. You know, they didn't wake up, or they didn't go to bed one night um, free from any sort of um, sexual um, perversion, but, and, and then all of a sudden wake up in the morning and fully engulfed in sexual sin. No, it, it was something that, that came about as a gradual turning up of the heat in their lives. And they find themselves in a place of, of torment and they seek relief. Thankfully, the gospel does provide relief for these things. If you're struggling with sexual temptation or pornography, there's help for you. 
But you need to know that this could, could be a very long, painful process. It, your situation didn't come about overnight. And your solution, as you, as you imitate God and as you it's a, it's a, offer a sacrifice, it's going to hurt. There will be pain involved. But, it, but it's a good pain to experience. God makes us holy. He calls us to be holy. And so Paul says we must, we must cut it all off, reject it. Coupled with Paul's warning to reject sexual impurity is a call to rejoice instead. You guys ready for that? Good. At the end of verse 4, we read, But instead, let there be thanksgiving. You know, throughout this portion of this letter to the Ephesians, Paul confronts sin with its substitute. So, We've seen already, right, the Christians are exhorted not to lie, but to tell the truth, not to steal, but to work, not to express bitterness, but rather kindness. So now he continues with this pattern in our passage. He he exhorts believers not to speak what is filthy or foolish or crude, but rather offer thanksgiving instead. Now, why is thanksgiving the proper substitute for impurity? I think it's because when we give our time to worship, uh, to rejoice and give thanks in God's presence, it, it purges us from anything other than God that we could be clinging to in our lives. There's this pastor who has a special ministry to Christian brothers and sisters who have various addictions. And he has a novel approach to helping Christians see the depth of the sin in their lives. Because one of the hard things about someone who's an addict is really to see what the, the nature of the sin that is in their lives. What he has, has them do is he has them study Old, temp, Old Testament temple worship. Why does he do that? Well, it... It it involves coming away from the rest of the world to a place of solitude. It causes them to take delight in a sacred place where they could return again and again. And it causes them to elevate their appreciation of divine faithfulness above any other earthly priority. And so what the pastor says is that going through this exercise repeatedly... um, uh, causes the, the addict to, to see their addiction really is the idolatry that it is. It's the, it's the worshiping at a temple of a foreign god in, in whom there are empty promises and empty promises alone. There's, there's no fulfillment in these addictions. And so in verse 5, he likens such people to idolaters. But he doesn't call the Ephesian Christians idolaters, does he? He reminds them of something. Something that you and I need to be reminded of. We are not idolaters. We are what? He says, saints. Remember, I have to keep repeating this. Saints are not the really, really good Christians, right? The ones who show up for everything and they read their Bible, they got it all marked up, right? Okay, it's a good thing. But uh, no, every Christian is a saint, A saint means that you've experienced God's grace in your life. It means that you've been set apart as holy unto God. Paul says that, he speaks to these Ephesians and he says, you are saints. And so he's saying, you're saints. So you can't do what is improper among the saints. 
So our, sta- our, our motivation for, for rejoicing, for, for being sexually pure, is, and pure in all other ways, is, is that we are saints. We're not the persons we once were. We've been set apart from this world as holy unto God. So God has made us holy, and therefore our hearts are to rejoice. Which leads us to our final point, which is that we are to be resolved. In the very last days of World War II, the USS Indianapolis was torpedoed. And of the 900, uh, roughly so, sailors who weren't killed in the initial torpedo bomb and the fire that ensued, they found themselves struggling for life in shark-infested waters. Add on top of the the fact that this was a secret mission that had something to do with with the atomic bomb. So people didn't even know they were missing for quite some time. Finally, four days later, when the search planes finally found the wreckage, there was only 317 sailors left to rescue. But here's the interesting thing. It wasn't just the sharks that killed them. It was the salt water. Salt water will kill you if you drink it and kill you quickly. Even though a number of the officers um, called out for the sailors to to not drink the salt water, to reject it, uh, the sailors lost their resolve and they drank it. One man told the story, a survivor of of one of his friends that was in the water with him. And this man said that there's, there's fresh water just under the surface. It's, it's, it's on the ship. It's right there. You can swim to it. It's in, it's in jars and containers. And so the man takes off his life jacket and he, and he swims below the surface. He pops up later and says, oh, my gosh, the water is so good. You've got to dive down and drink some for yourself. Shortly thereafter, the man died. Imagine how hard it would have been to resolve, be resolved not to drink the seawater. You're floating out in the ocean. The sun is hot. It's beating down on you. If you knew that salt water would kill you and yet find yourself in those circumstances, would you be resolved? Would you have the resolve not to drink it? In a similar way, Paul issues a warning here in verses 5 through 7. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, and they will try. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Paul issues a warning uh, to the believers in Ephesus and to us as well. The warning is twofold. The first is, that we're not to be like these unbelievers because they have no inheritance in the kingdom of God. And the second one is, is that they will one day face judgment. Perhaps you're here and you're thinking, but Mark, I've done some of these things. They're, they're part of my past. I'm not all that proud of it, but, but I, I, have, I, I have a background where this was such a part of who I was. Um, what are you saying? Am, am I going to be cut off from God's promised kingdom to come? 
But no, if you're in Christ, if you trust in Christ, you are, you're forgiven. Your sins are washed away. That kingdom is coming to you. The persons that Paul is talking about here, though, who are people, this is patterns in their life. They could care less. How dare you say this is wrong? Who are you to judge me? And they go after it. It's, it's part of their lifestyle. There, there's no remorse, no sorrow over this lifestyle. Paul is saying what at, at, the, at the end of, uh, at, at the end of time, they're, they're, they will be cut off from God's kingdom. That's his point. Paul also warns, warns that there's a judgment coming. Now, people don't like it when they hear this phrase, wrath of God, right? They have in their mind that God is some angry God with a red face and steam just shooting out of his ears. And he's getting all ticked off over some minor infraction, you know? And so they say, my God would never be like that. Well, guess what? My God's not like that. My God doesn't fly off the handle at things. He's not, he doesn't get angry like you and I. But he has every right to be angry. If God doesn't get angry at sin, then he isn't a God of love. He's a God of indifference. And God has a right to be wrathful. God's wrath is his righteous, settled anger at the sin that is prevalent in this world. He's angry at a lot of the same things you are. So what Paul is saying here is um, the wrath of God is coming. Jesus' own words, he says that there's a day coming when when everyone will have to stand before him and give an account for everything we've done in our lives. Those people will either receive God's wrath or they will have had God's wrath placed upon Christ. There's, in some ways, the believer and the unbeliever are the same. We're both the deserving of God's anger and his punishment. The difference is, for the believer... That anger, that wrath has been put on God's own son. That's the message of the gospel. God's anger, rightly deserved towards you, is placed on his own son. Now, why would Paul tell Christians about the coming fate of those who walk in darkness? So that that you would be resolved. Therefore, he says, do not become partners with them. He's saying, don't drink the salt water. It only leads to death. What does this leave us this morning? Perhaps you're here this morning and you haven't given yourself to Christ. You've, by, perhaps you've got within you some deep sense in your, in your soul that you're made for fresh water. And yet you feel as if all the cups that the world's been handing you uh, might have tasted good at the time, but just only left you more thirsty. Turn to Christ. Turn to him. Find, find that he will satisfy all the longings and desires of your soul. He alone can satisfy your thirst. You know, there's a time early on in Jesus' ministry when he's at a big banquet and a big feast. This is before people, uh, before he went to the cross. This is before, uh, you know, he proclaimed to be the Messiah. This is before all of this. Um, and, and people were trying to get their, their hand handle upon just who Jesus was. And it's interesting. Um, how was it that Jesus described the new life that he would give them? Here's what it says. Here's what John says. Jesus stood up and cried out, 
If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. My friends, there's no such thing as imitation water. Try to find a recipe for it. It doesn't exist. Nor can you find any substitute on earth for that which your soul thirsts for and longs for. Your, your longing is for Christ in the, in the living water that he alone can give you. So what, is it, what do we need to do this morning? All of us need to turn to Christ. Whether it's for the first time or whether, whether this is a part of your ongoing relationship with Christ. We all need to see out of our hearts flow these, this river of living water. And, and what is he referring to? He's referring to the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Because John says he was talking about the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in every believer. He is the spirit of holiness. He empowers us to live this life of sacrifice, this fragrant offering that you and I are in, in God's sight as we, as we give of ourselves in holiness, as we experience the pain of walking in holiness. The Holy Spirit is there to encourage us. He reminds us that God's wrath is no longer upon us that has been placed on His Son. And, and he, he, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that, that we're children of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave Himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You. Thank You that we can know You. We thank You that You are holy. We even thank you for your anger, your anger at sin. We thank you that you don't turn a blind eye to all the suffering and the injustice. As we think of those girls who are taken from their homes and their schools in Nigeria, we pray for them. We pray for justice. We thank, we're thankful that you're not indifferent. Father, we thank you that you call us beloved children, that you cherish us. May that change uh, how we live. May we desire to respond to your mercy and grace by living holy lives that are pleasing to you. May we be an aroma in this world of Christ to those who are perishing, we pray. Amen.